Voyage. On June 2nd, 1976, Don Bowles had plans to go out with his wife, Rosalie, that night. They were going to see All the President's Men, a movie about the investigative journalists who exposed the Watergate conspiracy. Instead, he ended up lying on the asphalt of the Clarendon Hotel parking lot. His dying words, call my wife, they finally got me, the mafia, Emprise, find John Adamson. This was the biggest murder trial in the history of Arizona. The three men who were accused had been in custody for over 14 months. And the reason that trial had taken so long is because one of the accused, John Adamson, had negotiated a sweetheart plea deal that would determine the fate of Max Dunlap and James Robison. But there were many twists and turns on the way to the courtroom. Voyage Media presents The Patsy. Investigative reporter Don Devereaux, who has spent the last 40 years of his life in pursuit of justice in the Don Bowles assassination, has a theory about the key witness in the case. Adamson knew he was going down. There was no question in John's mind he was in trouble. He was clearly identified as a member of a plot that had, in first-degree murder sense, just killed a reporter. The only question was what kind of a deal could John get, and what would he have to do to get it. And I think John was assured that uh, uh, if he cooperated and named other people than the right ones, they would make arrangements to have him get as short a sentence as possible, under the best terms of possible, uh, make sure his incarceration was as comfortable as possible. And, and the other outcome, which John himself realized, that had he chosen to rat on the people that really did it, he probably wouldn't live a week in the county jail. Uh, as he told one of his close friends, my people don't give immunity. Good morning, my name is Donald Harris, and in 1976, I was in private practice in Phoenix, Arizona. I was then asked to come in as county attorney. There were three lawyers that had a firm, and they were representing Adamson. And uh, I went to them, I knew them. You know, Phoenix was a small community, and we all knew each other, we were sort of on a friendly basis. And I said, look, I will give you 12 years. I want 12 years. I want Adamson to testify, but we want a proffer of the evidence right now. And they came back with, no, we want him to walk. And I said, no, no, that's not going to happen. I want a piece of flesh. I said, I want 12 years. I started out at 20 years. And my idea being, Adamson was such a piece of garbage, he would not have lasted out in the yard in the facility, prison facility. My idea being, go ahead and make the deal with him, get 20 years, which became a 12-year offer, and somebody will kill him in prison. They didn't want the deal. And um, once I found out, you know, that the trial was going to proceed, there was some stirring by the Attorney General, who I didn't care for, Bruce Babbitt. I never liked him. And Bruce Babbitt wanted that case from day one. There's something nobody ever talks about. Bruce Babbitt, that fair-haired little prosecutor from uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, he wanted to be President of the United States. And he was going to ride the Bulls murder case into the White House. No questions about that. 
There are overwhelming indications that Bruce Babbitt as Attorney General had had a brief period as a heavy hitter in Las Vegas and had lost some money and had not paid his gambling debts and those markers had been picked up by the mob when they realized it. He was an Attorney General of Arizona. That is sort of the, the undercurrent of a lot of things that happened thereafter. When rumors of Babbitt's gambling debts began to circulate in the Phoenix area, uh, there was uh, an FBI investigation at the request of the U.S. Attorney, uh, and they began to find things that supported the notion. Uh, two FBI agents went, went to Vegas and began working an investigation there and discovered uh, that there were three credit applications for casino gambling by Brucey e. Babbitt of Phoenix at Central Credit in Las Vegas. But what Babbitt did when he discovered that this was happening, uh, he had supported Jimmy Carter when Carter was elected, even though Bruce had run himself for a while in the, that election cycle. Um, he supported Carter. He went to the, White, to the White House and persuaded Carter that almost in reverse of Donald Trump fashion today, that the Republicans were, were witch hunting him as a Democratic Attorney General on phony gambling charges, fake news, and it was just a smear campaign. And could Carter do something to protect that from getting out of hand? And so Carter went to Griffin Bell, who was the Attorney General, and Griffin Bell called uh, Mike Hawkins, who was U.S. Attorney, and they shut the investigation down just as the FBI was beginning to find some stuff in, in Vegas. And the, and the FBI was not happy about being shut down, I might add. Uh, Clark Miller, Moose Miller was his nickname, talked to me later, he was furious about it because they were finding stuff that tended to confirm the allegation. Subsequently, there was information from Las Vegas casino officials, Las Vegas law enforcement, and even organized crime sources that Babbitt, in fact, had gone through a period where he might have lost as much as 170 grand at four casinos over a short period of time. The problem seems to be that Bruce, when asked about this by the FBI, lied about it. Lying to the FBI is a felony. And if Babbitt lied about having been in Vegas and he claimed he'd never been past the airport at that time, and, and the mob held the markers, which would prove he was lying, uh, Babbitt belonged to Joe Bonanno at that point uh, as an Arizona Attorney General. And uh, Joe Bonanno himself had held a meeting in southern Arizona in January of 76, predicting that that's exactly what Babbitt would do, telling some mob brethren of his that Babbitt, I'm quoting, has only got one way to go. Uh, he's going to basically say that the most he can do is ask us to sell a couple tracks, break up the monopoly, we'll sell those tracks to friends of ours and everything will stay exactly the same. The following month, Babbitt did exactly that, held a press conference, said I can't make him sell the tracks, I don't think legally, even though they are a convicted felon. And so I'm going to ask him to sell a couple tracks and break up the monopoly. That happened in February of 76 to the bewilderment of many people in law enforcement and politics. Four months later, Don Bowles is bombed. And still alive, he says, Adamson, Emprise, the Mafia. The very people that Babbitt may have taken a dive to on the gambling debt stuff just a matter of months before. The last thing Bruce would have wanted at that time was a big 
deep dive in a high-profile homicide investigation into the very people he had just taken a dive from. So maybe even apart from continuing pressure from Bonanno uh, to protect the dog tracks from, and the mob from investigation, Bevo would have had his own reasons for not wanting that investigation to go in that direction. And beginning even at Bull's funeral in June of 76, Babbitt was making noises about wanting to take control of the investigation. Uh, he did so immediately by lending a guy named Bill Schaefer from his staff at the AG's office to the county attorney's office to really help run the investigation uh, as a kind of support that they might need. So Donnie Harris had Bill Schaefer over there basically running the show a lot of that time. Um, and when Donnie Harris went public in a 60 Minutes broadcast that fall, uh, announcing that he had planned to hold a grand jury and target everybody who took the fifth, saying it had a country club, club smell to it. Uh, Bruce used that as uh, motivation to go see the governor and to get control of the investigation away from Donnie Harris. And so Bruce got control of the investigation with Schaefer and they, they worked out the plea deal deal with John Adamson that pointed at Dunlap and Robeson and confirmed all the earlier rumors that had been put in, in place. And they prosecuted Dunlap and, and Robeson initially in 77, prosecuting them together, largely based on the testimony of one man. John Adamson was the guy who stood in the witness stand and said, you know, these are the guys that paid me and that I got arranged to, you know, to do the actual push the button kind of thing. So the whole case on these guys was Adamson. And, and it, was done, it, was, it was Babbitt that basically saw to it with that particular plea deal. Why would Bruce Babbitt stake his personal and political rep on a plea deal statement from a petty mafia-connected hoodlum like John Adamson? Yeah, my name is Jack Weaver. I was assigned as a sergeant to the, uh, right at that time was the organized crime unit. Before that, it was the intelligence unit, so basically it was uh, the same activity, just under a different name. Okay, I was <clears throat> involved, obviously, involved in a lot of different things, one of which I had a source who had come to me and uh, had told me that he had a, a female friend, but the female friend had told him, an individual, Art Mortori, she had heard there was conversation that Matori was on an aircraft uh, plane ride from Vegas that included Bruce Babbitt and other individuals from the Phoenix area. Through this, Art Matori had found out that Babbitt had several gambling markers in the Vegas area. I could never really establish which uh, casino or whatever where the markers were held or who held him. People that worked on the project loved him. He was their fair-haired boy. He was feeding them information. They had a door into Bruce Babbitt's office. They lived up in that AG's office. There was a reporter with Bill Schaefer every day. There was a reporter with Bruce Babbitt every day for several years. This was the biggest thing that ever happened in the state of Arizona. Just prior to the murder trial of Max Dunlap and James Robinson, the Arizona State Legislature repealed the accomplice statute, allowing the prosecution to call an accomplice of any crime, in this case, John Adamson, to testify against his co-defendants without the corroboration of any witness and seek the death penalty. 
By repealing that statute, the state could call John Harvey Adamson as its star witness against Max Dunlap and James Robison. This eliminated the need for corroboration by another witness. Now, the prosecution could seek the death penalty on the basis of one man's testimony, John Harvey Adamson. And that is how the murder one trial of Max Dunlap began on September 3rd, 1977. I'm outside of the Maricopa County courtroom on day one of the murder trial of Max Dunlap and James Robison. It's been 15 months since a car bomb took the life of a Pulitzer Prize-nominated investigative reporter, Don Bowles. Today marks the beginning of the long-awaited trial that has gripped the state of Arizona and the nation. So when Dunlap went to trial and they were playing with Bowles' dying words as maybe a theory of defense, Almost every law firm in town was in a conflict of interest if they were going to talk about Emprise and the Funks and the Dog Tracks because they were, all the law firms were doing work for Emprise, the Funks, and the Dog Tracks. So Max had a hard time finding a criminal defense lawyer in Phoenix. Uh, he went to John Savoy, who was a civil attorney of his, supposedly a good friend of his. And John did something, and unfortunately I can't ask him now because he's deceased. John did something I just can't understand. He had a law partner of his take Max to Las Vegas, and they met with Morris Schenker at the Dunes, a mobbed-up casino operator. Uh, and Morris made a phone call to a guy named Paul Smith in Boston, an attorney he knew well, and arranged for Paul Smith to become Max Dunlap's defense attorney. Paul Smith was a mob attorney with the Patriarca family in Boston but also had dealings with Emprise at that time in the Boston area. Uh, Boston Bruins Garden kind of stuff. So Max ended up represented in court by a defense attorney who also represented Emprise in the mob. Uh, one of those, you know, curiosities, how the hell did that happen? The first day of my father's trial, uh, we all went as a family together, my mom and all seven kids. And uh, again, walking <laughs> through a sea of people and reporters and microphones shoved at us, uh, it was an unforgettable experience. Um, the reporters kept shouting things about, I don't know, it was horrific, about how, uh, you know, how is it where anyway we walked in and sat down in the trial and they in the in the uh, courtroom and ha I was scared to death I can tell you I was literally scared to death uh they gave like some opening statements and I'm gonna say the hardest thing in my life was to sit there and listen to the prosecuting attorney say the things he did about my dad because never in a million years ever I know my dad had no part of anything that they said. Uh, every day my dad would be um, ushered into the courtroom in handcuffs uh, by the sheriffs and um, every day he had, you know, they'd bring him in front of 
the crowd and unhandcuff him. And we never got to see my dad. I never saw my dad at all alone. So he would look and see us, all the kids, and he would, you know, smile and just say, it's okay. He'd always soothe us and say, it's okay. I love you. Just mouth it, you know, and you guys are okay. It's okay. I mean, I'll never forget how he always calmed our nerves when he was the one handcuffed sitting in front of the jury. It was amazing to me. Um, when the trial would start, it was, you know, I don't want to say it was a joke because it's it was such a serious time of our lives, but my family, um, you know, after each day, we sat in that courtroom day after day after day, and Anytime our um, defense counsel would bring up anything that, that would help my dad's case, the judge would overrule it. I mean, it was one after another. In my family, it ended up being a little, like I said, a little bit of a joke, because if something would be said, we'd say overruled, overruled, because we heard it at least, I, I bet we heard it 50 times a day in the courtroom. Um, there was never, a very on a very rare occasion, did he allow... Um, any anybody to speak or talk that would have made my dad's uh, reputation be bettered. So um, we sat through day after day of that. And then, you know, toward the end, they brought in all these character witnesses for my dad. I have to tell you, I think there was like 16 at least. There were so many. And they were all the most outstanding and upstanding um uh, businessmen in Arizona. It was not like they were just off the streets or some friend down the street. These were upstanding businessmen that came in and said how my dad's reputation was untouched. They believed he was innocent. There's no way he was, but they wouldn't get very far in their opinion of my dad without being shut down by the um, prosecuting attorney. Like anything that brought any light to my dad's character was just shot down immediately, either by the judge or by the prosecution. The, the trial that Bill Schaefer conducted uh, of Robeson and Dunlap was so laced with prosecutorial and court error. Uh, there were mistakes made in that trial that never should have been made before. Uh, it never, never should have happened. They did things in that case that just didn't make any sense. The court had allowed Adamson, despite the fact he had a plea deal protecting him from prosecution, to take the Fifth Amendment in the face of some questioning. You just can't do that. You can't be a prosecution witness with a plea deal and then take a Fifth Amendment when you're asked some questions about the case. When he became a prosecution witness with a plea deal, his obligation was to answer all the questions he was asked. Uh, that never should have happened. I don't know why the judge allowed it. I don't know whether the attorney objected to it at the time, but if the judge allowed it, if, if it was objected to, it was allowed anyway. The trial lasted 66 days. The jury deliberated for five and a half days. The day the verdict was or came in, um, I remember I was at a horror show at Paradise Park out in Scottsdale, and... Um, if I recall, I believe the jury had had the was deliberating for pretty much that whole week. We kept thinking it was coming, it was coming, and of course the whole family waited, holding our breaths because even though we knew that I don't know, I just we just always held out hope um, that somebody would believe us. And the day the jury uh, they called me in during the horror show to the office and told me I had to get to the courthouse immediately. The the jury had um, had come in with a verdict, so I literally 
jumped in my car and drove to the courthouse, and uh, which was across. It was a long way. I remember just panicked. And when I got there, uh, I want to say somewhere in a maybe in the garage or somewhere, I met my family, and we all went up together. And um, man, I can't even describe the fear in us. You know, knowing that um, the verdict was in, we wanted to be hopeful, but from what we'd been through in the whole entire trial, it didn't seem like anything was going. Um, anything, you know, the hope was, man, it was hard. And so we all walked into the courtroom and sat down, and um, I just remember the judge, it seemed like it took forever for them to read the verdict, but... Phoenix contractor Max Dunlap and James Robison, a plumber, were found guilty today of murder and conspiracy for the 1976 assassination of Don Bowles, a reporter investigating organized crime for the Arizona Republic. Well, I just remember that we're guilty. And we thought, God, this can't be happening. It just cannot be happening. That cannot be true. And anyway, I remember that my dad stood up and took off his watch and his wedding ring and gave it to my mom. And they shackled him and hauled him out of there. And I have to tell you, my family was 100% destroyed. Max Dunlap and co-defendant James Robinson were sent to death row. The Dunlaps and the community around them weren't done fighting, not by a long shot, but they needed an ally and they found one from an unexpected source. More on that in the next episode of The Patsy. The Patsy is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced, reported, and written by Chris Leach and Adam Prince and directed by Chris Leach. Executive produced by Nat Mundell, Karen Graham, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins, with additional editing by Nick Masidi and Andres Coca. Narrated by Joshua Molina. Cast credits available in the show notes. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes. When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved, and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing that the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution, Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries, as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.